If you get World Magazine uh, delivered or you follow online, you know that each year at this time their annual edition comes out where they review uh, all of the news stories of the previous year, uh, the most significant news stories. It's always uh, amazing to read through those because some of them seem like they happened just yesterday and some seem like they happened years ago. Of course, along with that uh, review of the news, they also publish every year a list of all the well-known people who have died in 2023 uh, in this edition. And it's always surprising because we kind of forget who passed away this past year. It always has a way of putting life into perspective, the brevity of life, the reality that we will not live in this world forever, and the truth that we will all one day die unless Christ returns. Now that is reality is made even more uh, palpable, we feel it more as we consider that world only includes the most famous people who died, politicians, artists, actors, musicians, sports figures. It doesn't include the thousands of people who die every day and who are known only to those who are friends and family. That reality forces us to look at life differently in a different way and hopefully to live life in a different way as well. It was a great encouragement to me in talking to Joan shortly after Carol passed uh, this, uh, actually two weeks ago now almost, um, that just before he passed, a few weeks before he passed, on his initiative, they began to talk about what heaven would be like. And they talked about it almost every day for the last several weeks and even months occasionally, with Carol just questioning and wondering what heaven would be like. He was looking at his life in light of eternity, seeing more clearly as he considered the promises of God given to him in the gospel. And that is a very good thing. It seems to me that the Lord was turning his attention more and more to eternal things as the day of his homegoing approached. Even in his often clouded mind due to increasing dementia, which had been going on for some time, he was clear on where he would spend eternity. Even Christmas Day when I saw him that morning in the hospital, he was very clear and very uh, secure in where he would be if the Lord were to take him home. And he is now, by God's grace, in the presence of his Savior, awaiting the resurrection of his body at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again in power and glory. That frame of mind, which looks at life in a more true and realistic way as it really is, and lives life in light of those eternal truths and realities, is what the Bible calls sober-mindedness, or to be sober-minded. And this is the topic I want to spend our time on over the next three Sunday evenings in January. Uh, when I will be preaching. Uh, next week, we have a missionary visit from the team or the leaders of the uh, youth or young life camp in Armenia. And because we had some of our members go over recently, they're coming to bring an update and a report on that ministry. But 
the last two weeks of this month, we'll also return to this topic of uh, sober-mindedness. So please, tonight, take your Bibles and open them to, if you're using the Pew Bible, page 1203, where you'll find 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you would, join me in standing as we read verses 13 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through verse 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, as we now turn our attention to this, your word, we pray once again for your blessing upon it, not only in the preaching of it, but in the hearing of it as well, that you would bless it to our growth and our conformity to Jesus Christ, that we might be such a people, sober-minded in all of our ways. For all of flesh in this world, all people are like the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, our God, endures forever. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As Pastor Fisher mentioned this morning, it has been, not every year, my custom to do a brief uh, thematic series to begin the new year as an encouragement to myself and to you as well. When I go away every December, I consider some of the things that the Lord may lead me to address in these times, and this year was no different as I considered a variety of topics. I didn't last year do a, a special thematic series. I just simply continued in our study of the book of Jude. In 2022, I remember that I preached the first two sermons that I ever preached back at Village in 2000 and 2001. It was a little nostalgic for me to go back to those sermons and to remember as I began the 22nd year of ministry here in New Jersey, 
I think in 2020, we did a series uh, on prayer, and in 2019, a series on the five points of Calvinism, as that was the year that we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Synod of Dort, where those doctrines were spelled out clearly. And so you might ask, well, what motivated me to do this study? As I was considering uh, what to preach on this year, I read an article that sparked my interest in this subject, written again in World Magazine by Andrea Sue, a favorite of mine and I know of many here in the church. Her articles are always very helpful, very thoughtful, very well written. And in her November 4th issue or article, she wrote about what she referred to as primary and secondary reality. Primary reality, she refers to, is what we call sober-mindedness. It's what really sober-mindedness is all about. And this is what she wrote, just briefly quoting a portion of that article. She begins this way, given the news in early November, it's not surprising that she would begin here. She writes, one minute you're dancing at dawn before a Buddha statue in the Negev desert, spiked limonana in hand, and the next minute you see paragliders from Gaza silhouetted against the sky and headed your way. Primary reality is about to overtake you. In the summertime, people flock to the shore to escape everyday life. They want white sand and penny arcades. But if you happen to go to Wildwood, New Jersey and stroll the boardwalk among t-shirt vendors, taffy shops, and boutiques, you will come upon a little space called the Boardwalk Chapel, where all they sell is wine without cost, Isaiah 55, 1. Some tourists quicken their pace, offended. It is an affront to them because the chapel deals in primary reality, which is not what they want to think about. To clarify terms, she writes, Secondary reality is that you need a new roof. Primary reality is that you're going to die soon and you need to get right with God. Seeing to a successful wedding day is secondary reality. Seeing to a good marriage is primary reality. Your kid making the school football team is secondary reality. Your kid developing a good character is primary reality. You get her point, I think. You see how clearly the world thinks and how we are to think as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sober-mindedness is seeing primary reality more clearly and living life in light of it. Seeing the most important things as they really are according to the scriptures, according to what God has taught us, and living accordingly. So some definitions as we begin this brief series. What sober-mindedness is not, because it's often easily misunderstood. To quote Paul Tripp, who, write, who wrote an article on what sober-mindedness is and is not, he said, it's not a lack of ability to have fun, to laugh, an absence of a sense of humor. Sober-mindedness is not taking yourself too seriously. We all have done that and have been around people who do that. Sober-mindedness is not being legalistic or judgmental. 
Sober-mindedness is not reaching the state of theological always rightism, he says, where you sort of hold your theology proudly. Sober-mindedness is not being one of those scary, unapproachable Christians that you would never think of being open with. That's not what sober-mindedness is. Well, what is it then? Well, as Andrea Sue says, it is understanding the world as it really is and the most important things as they really are in their proper place. From the idea of soberness, one thinks of alcohol, for instance, that's its primary meaning historically, but it came to, even in the New Testament, came to be seen more metaphorically. It refers to a clear-headedness, a self-controlled, temperate personality or way of thinking, if you will, a watchfulness over one's life, a clarity of mind, as one writer says, for service. It means living this life in view of eternity with the knowledge that this world is not all that there is. To see all of life with reference to God and the judgment to come. That's what it means to be sober-minded. And the scriptures commend in many places, though not using the word always, that kind of attitude on behalf of those who are called to be followers of Jesus. In the ESV, it's a word that is used only a few times in the New Testament. Now, there are other words in the Greek that are sometimes translated sober-minded or sober-mindedness. But this word in particular, which refers to this quality or character of clear-headedness or watchfulness or self-controlled and temperate, this is used particularly a few times. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's used as part of the character of an elder who is called to serve in Christ's church. And certainly listening to the sermon this morning, sober-mindedness would be required of elders who are called to do what we heard this morning with respect to the discipline of other elders. It requires men who are sober-minded. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, it's used to describe either, as both Pastor Fisher and I have said, either the wives of deacons or the women assistants to those deacons who are called to serve in that office, that they are called to be sober-minded. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that as he does the work of an evangelist, he is called to be sober-minded. And again, in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells that pastor that older men in the congregation are to be characterized by this trait, to be sober-minded, to think about life and the world differently, of course, than the world around them does. Now, there are only three other times besides the ones I mentioned where this word is used in particular, and we find them in the book of 1 Peter which is why we're going to spend over the next three sermons, not next week, but the two weeks following after tonight, we're going to look at each of the passages in 1 Peter because very interestingly, Peter uses this word in connection with three very important ideas regarding the Christian life. The first is holiness. The second is our prayer life. 
And the third is a matter of our watchfulness regarding our enemy or Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. Peter writes his two letters with a sense of urgency. It's very evident as you read Peter's letters. He's writing to believers who are scattered because of persecution. And throughout Asia Minor, they're spread out. The reality of the Christian life of suffering for Jesus because of their faith is a very real thing and experience for them. And Peter speaks a great deal about eternal things in his letters of the judgment to come, of the end of all things, and of the hope that belongs to those who look to the coming of Christ in glory. And so it's not surprising that three times in his letter, he calls believers to be sober-minded, to think differently, to view the world differently, to live their lives differently because of who they are in Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 Peter 1.13, he speaks with reference to the pursuit of holiness. In verse four or seven of chapter four, he speaks of sober-mindedness with reference to our prayers. And then in 1 Peter 5, 8, he speaks with reference to that watchfulness, which is another way of understanding what sober-mindedness is. And so my purpose in these brief sermons, three of them over the course of the next several weeks, is simply to encourage you as we begin a new year. It's always great as we begin a new year to think about our lives spiritually. It's always good for us to take stock of our Christian faith, where we are as compared to last year, where we want to be. I talked to a brother yesterday who spoke about setting goals for this year, and he's very diligent to set those goals in every area of his life. That's a good thing for us to do, especially as we enter a new year. And so tonight and over the next two weeks as we study these passages, my goal is simply to encourage you, to encourage you to consider this particular quality of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. The first point is this then, with respect to the pursuit of holiness, sober-mindedness is at the foundation it's at the very beginning of our pursuit of holiness. You see, there's no argument as we read this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 that one of the ways we can describe the Christian life is found in these verses. Peter quotes from the book of Leviticus as he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. You remember that book, it's all about the holiness of God. It's all about how we approach God in worship. And so Peter uses this sort of summary statement of who we really are in Christ and says this is what God fundamentally calls us to. He calls us to holiness. But it's very interesting that before he gets to that summary statement of what the Christian life is, he commends or he commands, I should say, these readers to prepare their minds for action. And to be, notice in verse 13, sober-minded, setting their hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to them or brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fixing their minds. Sober-mindedness is a fixing of the mind 
upon that grace to be revealed at the coming of Christ. It's fixing our mind on eternal things. And holiness relates to it all, of course, for we are called out of darkness and into the light of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Light is often used with reference to the holiness and the purity of God. And all who are called by God, who is thrice holy, are called themselves to be holy. In fact, the whole context of this first chapter prior to verse 13 is upon what God has done for us in our salvation, in our being born again. You see that in the verses we read, not by imperishable or perishable things, but by the imperishable blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's really talking about the beginning of our relationship with God in Jesus Christ, our conversion, our regeneration, if you will. He who called us is a reference to the beginning work of God in our salvation. When he effectually called us, making us alive in Christ. It is what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Paul writes or Peter writes of that which is new that has come, he's describing an exhaustive list of all that has been made new in Jesus Christ, a new heart, a new mind, a new way of looking at the world, a new way of thinking about life and how we live life. And one of those ways at the very beginning of our Christian life is that we are suddenly given a new mind to think about the world differently. In the language of Peter and of Paul elsewhere, we are given a sober mind, a mind that is again fixed on the eternal things and living life in view of those eternal things. That again is what sober mindedness means. And you compare this and think about the way the world lives. Jesus gives many examples in his teaching. You think of the rich man who built bigger barns. He was consumed by a love of the things of this world. He was consumed by the gathering of those things to himself, building bigger barns. And you remember, primary reality met him that night when God spoke to him and said, you foolish man. For this night, your life will be required of you. That's primary reality, eternal things, pressing itself into the reality that he was living in, which is just this world. There's the contrast. Another contrast is the, the, the 10 virgins, five of them foolish, who did not have oil for their lamps. They were not ready for the bridegroom when the bridegroom came. They were living their lives, doing all the things that people do, consumed by the ordinary events of life and not prepared for life that is to come. And when the bridegroom came, they were locked out, as it were. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, Screwtape Letters, which we've referenced, both of us as pastors over the years, uh, tells, of course, his uh, trainee in these things 
He writes, the business of devils, explains Screwtape, involves diverting human minds from the present and the eternal by leading them into the past and into the future. He explains that God intends his children, that is us, to contemplate eternity, death, and heaven and hell, and to dwell in the immediacy of the present moment, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. The present is pregnant, he writes, with meaning and possibility. Screwtape instructs Wormwood that these methods of escape divorce persons from reality, these distractions, luring them into a dead past and an unchangeable and frozen, that is unchangeable and frozen, or enticing them with futuristic utopian ideas that amount to unrealities. Screwtape recommends that fantasies about the future promise more success than forays into the past because thoughts about the future evoke hope and fear, false hope and irrational fear. Screwtape elaborates, the diabolical strategy muddles the intellect to confuse the future with eternity without realizing that the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. Eternity is as objectively real as God, but the future is vague and undetermined. You see his point, if the devil can get us to think about the past, which is, he writes, frozen and unchangeable, or the future, which is unpredictable and leads to irrational fear and false hope, then we can keep people's minds off of the real and true things of eternity, which is objectively as real as God himself is. So sober-mindedness coming at the foundation or beginning of the pursuit of holiness is a uniquely Christian trait. It begins at conversion. It's the new mind that you and I were given, a new way of thinking about this world and about the life that we live. Secondly, I think sober-mindedness, as Peter writes it here, and encourages the believers to be prepared for action in their minds, to be sober-minded, to set their hope fully on the gospel or the grace, I should say, to be revealed. Sober-mindedness actually encourages the pursuit of holiness. It follows then that if God has given us a new mind, as we persist in this sober-mindedness as we live, it actually encourages our pursuit of holiness. It directs us and leads us according to God's commandments to live according to that new life. It gives us the rules for living. It gives us a path upon which we are called to walk. It tells us how we are to live in this world. I think that's what Paul is after in the passage read earlier from Ephesians 4, when he writes to the Ephesian believers and he says this, I say and I testify in the Lord that you must now no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
You see, their minds are darkened, he says, in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Their minds are fixated upon the things of this world, the pleasures, the activities, the happenings of this world, giving no thought of the world to come. They have become callous, he says, and have given themselves over in their behavior to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that, he says, and here's the encouragement, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. As a schoolmaster, Christ has led us and taught us, assuming that you have heard, he says, about him, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see what Paul's doing. He's saying that this new way of thinking, this sober-mindedness to which God has called us and given us through his grace in the gospel encourages us to pursue and to live out a life of holiness. That's why in the passage before us, it precedes this uh, picture of what we are called to be and to do. He says we need to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded in order that we might walk in this life to which we have been called to be holy as he himself is holy. And then finally, and I think this is also very true, is, <clears throat> excuse me, that sober-mindedness sustains us in the pursuit of holiness as well. It doesn't just encourage us and point us in the direction of holiness, reminding us that this is the life to which we've been called. It actually sustains us in it. It's as if we seek to be more and more sober-minded that we not only are encouraged towards the pursuit of holiness, but actually sustained in that pursuit. If then, Paul writes, as he writes to the Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. That's sober-mindedness, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says, as you do these things, as you live with a sober mind in this world, that you will continue then and persist in and sustainedly move in the direction of pursuing holiness. He goes on to say, put to death, therefore, because of your pursuit of these things, put to death continually what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. 
anger and wrath and malice and slander and all obscene talk from your mouth. You see, that holy night life flows out of that soberness of mind. It reminds us of the life that God calls us to live. This idea of the sustaining of our pursuit in holiness and the way that sober-mindedness does that, it reminds me, as I was thinking this week, of a perpetual motion machine. I'm told that that is impossible because of the laws of thermodynamics, that a machine cannot be put in motion, given energy to be put in motion and continue without the additional energy being given, that that's an impossibility. But this idea of sober-mindedness functions like, because it's a grace of God, it's a gift of God, it functions like that energy which sustains us perpetually in the pursuit of holiness. It is as we continue to see the world with a sober mind, as it really is with reference to God, that we are enabled more and more to pursue a life of holiness to which he has called us. It's central to it. Without the soberness of mind, there is really no pursuit. There's really no desire to pursue a life of holiness. And so three things as we close. Uh, just this evening, as we close this particular sermon, we'll turn our attention to prayer and its relationship to sober-mindedness and then to watchfulness as Peter uses it in chapter 5, especially regarding our enemy, a lion, Satan like a lion. The first point is very simple. Be ye then sober-minded as you think of this new year. Let this be a resolution that you make before the Lord. Some of you don't like resolutions. I'm not particularly fond of them. We usually break them pretty quickly, don't we? But resolutions are good. Goals are good to set. And one of them that we should set always is that we might this year be more sober-minded in how we live. I think the world in which we're living today calls us to a sober mind, to understand what's happening in the world, to have a heart, as we'll see later, of great wisdom. If you're not a believer tonight, perhaps you have only one way of looking at the world. You just look at it as it comes to you. You just look at it and you experience as it as you experience it each and every day. You have no thought of things that are eternal before you. Let me invite you and encourage you to consider eternal things because a call to the gospel, a call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is a call and an invitation to sober-mindedness, to think about the world differently than you do even perhaps tonight with respect to your own sin, your need of salvation and of a savior. You heard that this morning as we heard about Christ and his death on the cross for those who would believe in him. That's part of what it means to have a sober mind, to understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and why it was absolutely necessary. I think of the Apostle Paul as he approached the unbelieving world there on the Areopagus at Mars Hill. It's a place in Athens, as you know, in Acts chapter 17, a place the Costas just returned from and 
my girls as well, and many of you have visited that very place and stood on the place where Paul gave that famous speech in Acts chapter 17. He was really speaking to people who were not sober-minded. They were interested in all of the latest things of this world. They were very much modern people as we have in our world today. The latest and greatest ideas were shared in that context. And Paul came into that context. And you remember what he said. For as I passed along, Luke writes, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's bringing primary reality to bear upon their secondary experience of reality and life. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's sober-mindedness. That's a man who's thinking about eternal things and bringing them to bear upon a group of people who were only thinking about the present and about this world and what it has to offer. If you're a believer tonight, I encourage you to consider those resolutions. Jonathan Edwards famously at the age of 19 and 20 and lived in the early 18th century. He wrote 70 resolutions for his life, two of them just by way of example. He said, resolve to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ to trust and confide in him and to consecrate myself wholly to him that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I confide in my redeemer. And then resolution 61, he says, resolved that I will not give way to that listlessness which I find unbends and relaxes my mind from being fully and finely fixedly set on religion whatever excuse I may have for it, that what my listlessness inclines me to do is best to be done, etc. And so I encourage you to be ye this year sober-minded. Secondly, resist this world's deceit. Resist this world's deceit. One of the other reasons that I wanted to study this myself as I spent that time away is that I've noticed in my own life at times how easy it is to get sucked into the vortex of wasted time, watching inane and senseless things. Sometimes people, my son chiefly among them, my youngest son will send me these little shorts, they're called. I don't know this 
term or this world, but you know when you get these little shorts, you can, after you watch it, just go like this and go up and up. And you can begin to watch thousands of them if you allow yourself and scroll through thousands of them, wasting so much time. How easy it is for us to be enamored and called away to these things. Some of you may be saying, oh, here's just another old person telling me about the dangers of cell phones. Well, first of all, I'm not old, so I'm offended by that. But I said it, so I'm just kidding. You might say, we've heard this before, but you've heard it before because it's true. Again, Screwtape, in his advice to Wormwood, speaks of our contemporary culture so powerfully. He says, by the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted, so as to end in our favor, that is the devil's favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. When I read that and I understood what streams are, and I understood what shorts are, I thought, what a fitting picture of the world in which we live. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream, the never-ending views of people's lives doing inane, silly things. Now, yes, there's some profitable stuff. Sometimes primary reality sort of fits into one of those shorts and suddenly your attention is arrested and called back to the thinking of eternal things. But for the most part, what these things do is draw our attention away from thinking about life in a sober-minded sort of way. So we must be careful about these things. His goal as our enemy is to draw ourselves, to draw us away from seeing life from an eternal perspective and to cloud our minds with the constant and never-ending distraction of this world. Which leads me to my last point, which is simply this advice. Simply live wisely. Live wisely in 2024. Live according to the knowledge that God has revealed to you in his word. Wisdom is taking and using the knowledge that God has given to us in a way that is fitting in order to live a life that he's called us to live. This really is sober-mindedness. It really is what Moses says at the end of Psalm 90. Listen to his words. You can hear the sober-minded view of the world. For all our days, he says, pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon all gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And here's the end of this. This is what he says at the end. So teach us then, teach us, O oh Lord to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is sober-mindedness. 
That's what it is. And it leads us, fuels a pursuit of holiness. In 1992, MTV debuted a show that they called The Real World, which became its longest running series ever and inspired much of what we see today as reality TV. It has not been good for our culture. It has not been good for our world. This is what the tagline said. This is a true story of seven strangers picked to live in a house, to work together, and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. This is the real world. It reminded me of a phrase my father used to always tell us, three kids, as we were growing up. As we transitioned from being teenagers to adults, and we realized that life was going to be different after high school, he would always say to us, welcome, son, welcome, daughter, to the real world. What he meant was that it was a wake-up call to see that, well, car insurance is actually pretty expensive. And when you have to pay for your own gas, it makes things a little bit different. But you see, the real world, those are secondary things. Primary reality, the real world, is something very different than these things that are part of everyday life, the realities of living in this world. The real world is the one we live quorum Deo, before the face of God. It is lived by those who have been alive, made alive by his grace, whose eyes have been opened to the realities of this life and the life to come, and who live life before his face with eternity in view. And because of this great work of God in our lives, we are encouraged to pursue a life of holiness before the God who sees all things. We long for and pray for wisdom that we may honor him in all we do. We live with an awareness of who he is and what he calls us to do and how he calls us to live. And as we continue to see life and reality in this way, we are enabled more and more to live such a life to his glory and honor, remembering that this world is simply not our home but our home is where Christ is, and we continually fix our eyes upon him. This is what it means to be sober-minded, and it is what we are called to do. May the Lord, as we begin this brief series tonight, grant us every grace as we begin 2024 to prepare our minds for action, being sober-minded, and setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have issued and called us to such a life. Uh, this call is our call as we are followers of Jesus Christ to live our lives differently now because of what you have done for us in him. You have changed us. You have given us new minds and those minds are often led astray by this world and we often fall into its snares. Protect us, we pray, from these snares. Help us to be a people who live in a sober-minded way with our eyes fixed upon Christ, looking unto eternal things, to heaven itself, and the hope that is there for us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray your blessing upon us to that end, 
that you may be glorified and that we might live holy, godly lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.